Hey, welcome. This is Pastor Tyler Whitcomb. I just want to say on behalf of the leadership of Fos Church, we are so glad that you're checking out the Fos Church podcast. At Fos, we believe in the authority of God's word and the ability it has through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of mankind and to mold and shape its readers into the image of Christ. And so we pray that these messages would do just that that you would hear God's word and be changed by it. Lastly, our encouragement is, if you do not belong to a local Bible-believing church, that you would do so, because a podcast will never allow you to serve the purpose that God has called you into belonging to the church. Welcome. Are we doing church? Good. Uh, in case we haven't had the privilege of meeting, uh, my name is Joseph Laslett. I'm a member of our leadership team here And I always consider it an honor and a privilege to become up here and just be the microphone for God's word. Um, And I was actually talking to my father-in-law before I came up here, and he said, no pressure, just because I'm in the audience. And I said, there is no pressure. All I'm coming up here to do is proclaim God's word. And you either agree with it or you don't. Uh, And so the pressure really is off. Uh, But if you've been with us for the last three or so months, you know we've been going through a series called A Tale of Two Kings. And essentially, this is a study of the historical book of 1 Samuel, where we're going through the first two anointed kings of Israel. And one of the things I love when we go through a full book, chapter by chapter, is you start to see the same themes come up week after week after week. And I believe that's intentional by God, because repetition helps those things stay in our heart. And one of the big themes that we've seen throughout the book of 1 Samuel is this concept of we as people have to deal with fear in our lives and learn to trust God. Uh, And at this point, it can be easy to look at the two anointed kings and say, Saul is somebody whose life was led by fear, didn't have faith in Christ. Don't be like him. And David's the man after God's own heart, whose life was led by faith in all the small moments. Be like him. And there's some truth to that, generally speaking. But what we see from today's text is that David, even though he's a man after God's own heart, is still a broken sinner. And just because he's saved doesn't mean he's removed from having to deal with fear on his day-to-day life. Um, and so up to this point, what we've seen it really in this book is we started with the first anointed king, the people's king, Saul. And we see right from the beginning that he has these fears and these insecurities which up to this point have led him to try to kill David, the second anointed king, the king in waiting, three separate times. Um, And really, the last couple weeks, we've seen these attempted murders and David's wife, who's Saul's daughter, and David's best friend, who's Saul's son, have helped him escape. And then last week, Pastor Justin went through chapter 20, where Jonathan goes to his dad and tries to reconcile these two anointed kings who God has put into place. And we see that Saul is so angry. His fear and insecurity have gone to such anger and hatred that he tries to kill his own son. So what we see today is David's on the run, um, and and he's he's feeling it. Uh, And I've titled this sermon today, Facing Fear and Learning to Trust God. And I think it's so timely because I've spoken with so many of you in here over the last couple months, and you talk with any, any of you long enough, it seems like we're all struggling with fear and anxiety in some component of our life, whether you've been a Christian for 40 minutes or 40 years, there are things in this world that cause us to be fearful. Might be our own insecurities. Maybe we have wounds from experiences that we had when we were young. 
Some of it is just you're a Christian, you're faithful long enough, you face persecution and the attacks of the enemy. And that, that can be very, very scary. And some of it's just the byproduct of living in a broken world. The world itself is broken, so sometimes your car breaks down, somebody breaks into your house, you lose your job, you have a health issue, and you're, you're, just, you're faced with fear and uncertainty. And so, uh, really, I have three points for today uh, that, that I want to go through and pull from the text. First, I want to look at the dangers of fear, because there are real dangers that if we let fear dictate our actions in our lives, it'll lead us into some very dangerous things. I want to offer us some encouragement today, because despite what you're going through, what fear you're facing, I want to look and see how God is faithful, both in David's story and in our lives and in the circumstances that we're dealing with. And ultimately, I want to end today by saying if fear is taking root in your life, you feel like you're being led by it, what can we do based on God's word to move from fear to faith? Because ultimately, that's where God wants us to be living in in, in fellowship with him and trusting him in all the moments of our life. Uh, So with that, we're going to move straight to the text And we're going to go through my first point here, the dangers of fear. And so picking it up in verse two, it says, David answered the priest Ahimelech, the king has given me a mission, but he told me, do not let anyone know anything about the mission I'm sending you on or what I have ordered you to do. And the first danger we see uh, of being led by fear is it leads us directly into sin because we try to take control of the situation. We don't trust God's timing. And what we see with David here he's telling just a plain-faced lie to the priest. He's fled to Nob. He's in the holy temple of the church talking to a man who loves God. And, he, and he's concerned that if he tells him what's really going on, Saul's going to find out. He's going to come and try to kill him a fourth time. And this time, he might hit the bullseye while he's playing darts. And so he's fearful. He's absolutely fearful. And so what we see is he, he tells him, the king sent me on a mission, which we know isn't true. Saul did not send him to the temple. And he insinuates that he's there with a group. And we see that his lies, his sins, start to breed more lies, start to breed more sins, because then the priest asked David some questions. And uh, you know, he's like, okay, David said, give me some bread. And Himelech's like, okay, but if you kept yourself consecrated, your book might say holy. And then David says, I swear that women are being kept from us, as always when I go out to battle. He's certainly not going out to battle. He's on the run. And he says, the young men's bodies are consecrated. He's by himself. There's nobody else with him, so he's continuing to lie. And he says, even on an ordinary mission. So, of course, their bodies are consecrated or holy today. He's telling him, like, of course, we're, we're honoring God. We're being holy. All the while, he's lying straight to his face. He's sinning. He's sinning. He's sinning. And what we see here. Uh, is that all our, our sins, even if we perceive them to be small, even if we perceive them to be secret and, and not harming anyone, have real consequences, have absolutely real consequences. We've already seen it with Saul, right? He's, his fear and insecurity has led him to attempted murder. And what we're going to see here is these lies, these sinful actions by David, actually lead to Ahimelech's death. We see this in chapter 22, uh, where Saul does find out David was there. And he goes to talk to Ahimelech and question him. And what's crazy is Ahimelech probably could have lied to protect himself, but he doesn't. He tells the truth in God's house, and Saul kills him, kills the priest, and kills almost all the members of his family, except for one of his sons who escapes to David. And David says this, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. 
David is telling us that my sins, my lies led to the death of the people in that temple. That little white lie seemed small. He perceived it not to be a big deal and it cost people their lives. And in the same way, we have a lot of sins that we may perceive as small. We may be doing in secret and we don't think it has an effect. But in the same way, it has very real consequences. You know, I, th- I think of some of these examples, uh, you know, you, you read the stats on men and women, both outside the church and in the church who are addicted to porn. And it seems like it's being done in secret. It's not hurting anybody, but it's rewiring them. It's wrecking marriages, leading to record high divorce. It's causing bad dating habits. Uh, and ultimately, it's leading people to treat people like they're tools to be used versus people to be loved. You look at gossip. I mean, gossip is one of those things where I don't even sometimes think we believe it's a sin. We do it so secondhanded in our culture. And yet gossip, if allowed to take root in our hearts, can lead to disunity within the church, within the workplace, even within your own families. And lying, just like David here, little white lies that we may do to manipulate a situation, protect ourselves, can lead us to compromise our integrity to the point where people don't believe anything that comes out of our mouth. And if as Christians, our job is to go into the world and proclaim truth, if even white lies compromise our ability to do that, then it is a huge deal because that's somebody's soul at stake. It may not directly kill them physically like Ahimelech and the priests, but it could lead them to not having a chance to respond to the gospel because they don't believe you. So that's the first danger of fear, is it leads us to sin. Second danger of fear, uh, if we look at here, is it leads us to becoming timid. If we see, we see this in uh, verse seven, it says, one of Saul's servants detained before the Lord was there that day. His name, name was Doeg the Edomite, chief of Saul's shepherds. And what we'll see and what we see in chapter 22 is he's a very violent man. And David said to Ahimelech, do you have a spear or sword on hand? I didn't even bring my sword or my weapons with me since the king's mission was urgent. He's continuing to lie. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. You know, it's, it's meant to be a trophy in God's house. Because David understood when, he, when they put the sword there, that he didn't defeat Goliath. He kept Goliath's head as his trophy. But the sword belonged to God because ultimately God defeated him. And ultimately that sword should have been a reminder of that. What we see is it's not. He takes it and he says, there's none like it. But the very next verse doesn't say he took the sword and went to go fight Doeg the Edomite. You don't see him stand bold and then pray to God. What do we see? David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. Instead of seeing the sword as a powerful reminder of God's faithfulness, he saw the sword and apparently the thought that ran through his head was the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Philistines don't like Saul. I will go seek refuge with him. Essentially, he becomes this timid person who can't even stand against a detained man of Saul. And it's, it stands out because in contrast to chapter 17, you know, when Goliath shows up and David sees it, he says, who is this that stands and defies the armies of the living God? I mean, he is so emboldened. His focus is so on God. He's unrecognizable in this text. He's so timid. You see him lying, you see him running, you see him unwilling to confront his sin, Doeg the Edomite, he's timid. And I think this is so dangerous because it really does affect our ability to live out our calling. You think of the Great Commission, it takes boldness to do what God calls us to do, to go into the world 
The world hates us if we're followers of Christ. Satan hates us. He seeks to devour and destroy us. It takes boldness to go out there and stand firm on truth in a culture that doesn't take what the Bible says as truth very often. And it takes boldness to disciple people. It takes boldness for me to come up here and proclaim truths and to not shave off things to make it sound better to your ears or to fit your desires. I mean, there's some truths in here that I struggle with. You know, I had the question going over this text, is it ever okay to lie? You know, if my family's hiding underneath the floorboards and the Nazis show up, you know, is that okay? There's difficult truths in here that we have to wrestle with. And it takes boldness to just say, I'm going to trust God's word over my opinion. And it takes boldness to disciple someone because if you see somebody in a perceived small sin, it could be very easy to see somebody gossiping or, you know, having a white lie and just ignore it. But it takes boldness to come to them in love and gentleness and call them back to repentance. I mean, I, I read the gospel accounts and it took three years for these disciples to get what Jesus was teaching. I mean, he, he had to be bold, he had to be patient, and in the same way, we have to be bold to live out our calling. And when fear gets involved, we become timid. Uh, I think the best example I have of this is at the beginning of the month as we were preparing for Easter, I was in my workplace uh, and my, I had a conversation with my boss and he knows that I'm heavily involved here and that I preach a few times a year. He started asking me some questions about, you know, what are you guys doing for Easter? And so we had a very, very nice conversation uh, and he basically gave me an opportunity to share the gospel on a platter. It was in a very public environment. There were 20, 25 people around. And unfortunately, I let fear take root in my heart. I was worried, what if I get rejected? This could be very awkward. What if this affects my, my ability to be successful at work going forward? And I didn't share the gospel with him. So somebody I've known almost nine years who was genuinely curious. And when fear gets involved, we become timid and we miss out on what God's called all on our life is. Um, and I'm sorry, it, it makes me a little choked up even talking about it. And I remember calling Kristen and I said, hey, let's pray. I want to ask God to forgive me, ask for additional opportunities. Um, but I contrast that with the times where I felt empowered, emboldened. I went on a bachelor party with my high school best friends and half the people there I didn't know. We went out to dinner and I was just so excited about what God was doing here at FOS and in my life that I couldn't help. It was just coming up everywhere. And I had a deep gospel conversation with five different people that day, even our waitress. And it's just, that's the difference when we're being led by fear and faith. And I think it's one of those dangers that we just don't think a lot about. But if, if you're here and you have breath in your lungs and you put your faith in Christ, you're being called to proclaim the gospel, defend the gospel. And if you're being timid, you can't effectively do that. So that's the second danger. The third danger that we see here is the fact that we're all susceptible to backsliding in our faith if we're not being strengthened by the grace of God. Um, I mean, you look once again, the contrast between chapter 17, chapter 21. When David's fighting Goliath and he doesn't care that the king doubts him, his family doubts him. He doesn't care that Goliath is the warrior out there. It'd be like me trying to play LeBron James in a one-on-one -on -one game. He doesn't care. He trusts God and his power. And you can contrast it here four short chapters later it doesn't even look like the same man. You could argue and even question, does he even really trust God? And it's just the reality that we don't drift toward holiness in our walk with Christ. It takes daily effort. That's why Paul, when he uses the illustration of the Christian life is like a race, takes daily effort and exertion to move forward toward holiness. It's like standing in a river. If you don't paddle forward, 
you get pushback. Uh, and I just, you know, the warning for us today is I don't know where you're at in your walk with Christ. I don't know if you've been a Christian for a few years, a lifetime since your youth. But I, I just want to caution us to never be so prideful to think that we can't backslide like David did here. I mean, life is tough. Prolonged trial will wear you down. We need God's grace. I mean, the second his hand is removed from us, we are susceptible to be just like David here. And you look at David's resume and, you know, the faithful man he was in chapter 17, the things he did defeating Goliath. I don't know if you've defeated somebody like Goliath or done something like that. But even if you have, Scripture's telling us just like David, we could fall into this trap. And so it's the, da- the third and final danger we see here. But certainly don't want to leave us at dangers and warnings today because the word of God should serve as an encouragement for us. And so if you're dealing with fear and you're worried about some of these dangers, maybe you have been timid, maybe you have been sinning because of your fear. I want to offer some encouragement because while we see David being led by fear here, all we see in the text is God being faithful. I mean, it's everywhere. His fingerprints are everywhere. And so uh, I want to encourage us by looking at the faithfulness of God in the story today. The first is God's faithful because he has a purpose in these troubling circumstances. Uh, and, and David himself would say this, chapter 17, when he's going to fight Goliath. Everybody's doubting him, and he's saying, you know, my time as a shepherd, I was fighting bears, I was fighting lions, and that wasn't purposelessness. God used that to prepare me to take, take down Goliath. And if he could save me from a bear and a lion when I was just eight years old with a, with a stick, surely I can beat Goliath with a sling and a stone, right? Um, and in the same way, he has a purpose for David. You know, he doesn't want David to have the same fate as Saul. We see Saul got to ascend to king very, very quickly and very, very easily. And his fears and insecurities never got dealt with. So every decision he made, he made out of his pride. And it, look at what it's led to. And God's saying, when you become king of Israel, I want you to be a king that despite your power, despite your influence, is still gonna be somebody who seeks to be led by God, the living God whom, who defeated Goliath. And apparently it's gonna take David 10 years to learn this lesson because he's going to be on the run with Saul trying to kill him for 10 years. Um, but as with any illness, sometimes the treatment plan takes a long time. And David's going to get there. And this is important for us because I don't know all the circumstances and situations that, that you guys are all going through. Um, I've spoken with some of you. Some of you were dealing with health issues. Some of you were dealing with the loss of loved ones. Some of you were dealing with job struggles. Some of you are just dealing with your own insecurities and anxieties and you don't have control of your life or your situation and it's causing anxiety, and depression. I don't know what it is, but if we trust in the faithfulness of God, we can see that he has a purpose for you. And it's really twofold. One's outward. It's always the great commission. You know, he was preparing David to be king of Israel to lead the people as God would will them. And in the same way, He's preparing times and places and opportunities for you to share the gospel. And whatever you're going through right now is either going to put you in the path of that person or prepare your heart and your mind to have that conversation. But even above and beyond that, every circumstance in our life is meant to sanctify us and grow us closer in the image of Christ. Ultimately, once you're saved, you know, while we're free from the consequences of sin, the journey doesn't stop there. God's seeking to grow you into the image of Christ. Uh, and like somebody who's building a statue out of a piece of stone, he's going to chip away at those things, 
those sins in your life that taint you and that aren't of Jesus. And so if we understand that the circumstances of our life are working for us good, if we let it have its full effect, we can actually experience peace and joy and contentment even in troubling circumstances. And so we need to remember that. The second way we see God being faithful in the text is just the way he actually provides for David's physical needs. You see it here in verse one, David flees, he goes to Himelech at Nob, and when you read the commentaries, you understand he's actually going into the house of the Lord. God provides him shelter. David starts lying and asking for bread, and, and while it wasn't a good way to get that, God was faithful to give him food, not just for that moment, but for his journey. And then we see an enemy arises, and God gives him the sword of Goliath to defend himself, but also to remind him that God was with him. And even beyond that, we see that he gives David a Himelech. And it's a shame that he's in the Lord's house. We don't see him ask a Himelech to pray with him to God. But alas, God did give him that person to help him in that trial. I mean, all you see is practical provision. And it might not have been what David wanted. David probably just wanted Saul to chill out and welcome him back so he could play his harp. But God was meeting his needs. And in the same way, Jesus in Matthew chapter six, when he's preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, tells us he's gonna provide for our practical needs. He uses the illustration that God clothes the flowers of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. How much more valuable are we than they? And He says, if you have a need, I will give it to you. And I think what gets challenging here uh, is we very often think we know what we need, right? We need health, we need wealth, we need comfort, right? That's what we need. I don't need this challenging circumstance. And the reality is God promises to give us what we need, but he doesn't promise to give it to us in the way we want or when we want it. And very often what you actually need is that horrible circumstance that you would have never wished for in your own life. So we need to remember that. He's gonna meet our needs, but we have to trust that God knows what we need more than we do. Uh, and, And I can, once again, have a personal story with this. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the last two years, I've just had a string of health issues. And it's just like, I can't get healthy. Um, I spent more time in the doctor's office in the hospital the last two years. Nothing urgent, I'm not passing away or anything like that. God willing, 95 years and beyond. But I've just had aching and nagging health issues. And it's really drained me. And I've probably prayed thousands of times, God, can you give me healing? I know your word says you can heal. We have examples of how you heal. Why am I still sick? Why am I still hurting? And what I can see in hindsight and even now in the midst of that is it's actually been what's been best for me. My relationship with the Lord is so much deeper than it would have been if I hadn't gone through that valley. I look at my marriage to Kristen, uh, who's walking down and sitting down right now. I know she would not have wished for as many health issues as we've had, but I can tell you it makes those superficial things that you argue about in marriage just seem small. I feel like our marriage has come together almost in a supernatural way. Uh, in some ways, it feels like we've been married a decade, and, and I mean that in a positive manner. Um, and then I just think of some of the sins and the pride that I had in my life, um, particularly when you look at workouts and, you know, I want to look good. And I just, God made me confront that sin and really put it to death. Uh, and I'm not a finished product. I sure I have many other seasons of difficult circumstances But sometimes it can be challenging when you're in the middle of the storm to say, God, is this really what I need? 
And that's where I would just encourage you to look at God's faithfulness. Look at how he's actually meeting your needs there because there is, uh, there just, there is a purpose for it and he is going to meet your needs. And then the third way uh, we see that God's faithfulness text is really from Psalm 56, which is David's commentary on what's going on in this chapter. And so when he flees to Gath, what we see here is the king and their servants recognize him. I mean, he's a tough guy to miss. He's killed Goliath. He's been wrecking the Philistines for months, and they recognize him. Uh, and it seems like when you're reading 1 Samuel 21 that it's happening in a matter of minutes. But Psalm 56 tells us the Philistines actually seize David at Gath. And in this time, he's sitting in the prison cell. He's contemplating his circumstances. He's, I'm sure he's struggling. Uh, and we see, see him say the following in verses 11 through 13 in Psalm 56. What can mere humans do to me? The reality is a lot. He's almost been killed three times. He's in prison. But he says, what can mere humans do to me? I'm obliged by vows to you, God. I will make my thank offerings to you. For you have rescued me from death, even my feet from stumbling, to walk before God in the light of life. The third way we see that God's faithful to David in this text is he's secured a future for him. And this is all about perspective. Uh, you know, when our, when our focus is on our circumstances, we risk not seeing God. But when our focus is on God, our circumstances seem so small. It gets down to the heart issue. What's, what's your rudder? What's guiding you? Uh, and he's saying, what can mere humans do to me? Well, they can do a lot to you on this side of eternity, Ultimately, as believers in Christ, death has no hold over us. That's the final enemy. Not only that, God says, you're going to be with me forever. You're going to have a glorious inheritance. There's going to be such glories for you that what you're going through right now, as the apostle Paul would say, don't even compare to the glories that are to come. So he's, he's given him a secured future. And in the same way, we have that. And I just want to offer some encouragement because I know there is some real fear, anxiety, and pain in this room. Some of the things you guys are going through are just unimaginably difficult. I just want to encourage you that God hasn't forgotten about you. I want to say, look to the cross. Remember what Jesus has done, the price he paid for you. He secured you from death. He has a future for you. Look forward to what he's going to do. Revelation 22 says, Jesus is returning soon. Do we believe that? Because if we did, it makes these present pains and circumstances feel so much smaller. But ultimately, in the midst of your pain, in the present, remember the promise that God is near to the brokenhearted. I love James 5. Uh, it talks about the steadfast, steadfastness of Job. And it says the God delivered him because of his compassionate and merciful heart. God cares so much about what you're going through right now. He's not indifferent to it. And just because he has a purpose in your troubling circumstances, my boss can have a purpose in firing me. That doesn't mean he cares. God has a purpose and he cares about your pain. It's why he died on the cross. It's why he's saying you're going to be rewarded for what you endure for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And I just want to offer that encouragement to us today because the circumstances of life can be tough. And if you're here today and you don't have your faith in Jesus Christ, there's no better time. Jesus is returning soon. That same secured future that we as the children of Christ have is available to you. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you commit your life to Christ. 
it's not too late. You have less time once you leave today than you did walking in. And he wants you to have that secured future. He wants you to be free from fear. So that's our encouragement. But I want to end today by just talking about the reality of if fear is in your life, it's leading your actions, it's taking deep root. How do we move from fear to faith practically? Because I can tell you God's faithful, but God's word would say there is, there's practical steps to move from fear to faith. So we're going to stay in Psalm 56. In verse three, David tells us, here's how I moved from fear to faith. It says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. It's this concept of we're promised difficult circumstances in this life. God promises to always be faithful, but there's an element of personal responsibility if you want to live and experience that power and peace that comes from God's faithfulness. You have to choose to trust him. It's like God, it's like you're hanging off a cliff. God's got his hand out. He's saying, trust me. If you never reach out for that hand, you don't get to experience that safety, that security, and that peace. And he wants you to do that. And I love the reality that David doesn't separate fear and faith because the reality is they exist in the same soil. You're fearful because there's uncertainties. You don't have control over the situation. You can't have faith unless there's uncertainty and you have to trust God in the situation. So having a fearful feeling when something comes up isn't necessarily sinful. What you choose to do with that fear can be. If you choose to let fear take root in your heart and let that dictate your actions, that's where it leads to sin. That's where it leads to not trusting God. And that is a sin. It's the great sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. They didn't trust God. But David takes it a step further because I can say, just trust God today. And it might not necessarily be helpful. You might be sitting here and saying, I don't. Well, how can I practically trust God? Well, David wrote another Psalm on this chapter, Psalm 34. And he gives us the exact steps. There's three steps. If you want to move from fear to faith and actually get to a point where you can trust God, there's three things you can do. The first, uh, looking at Psalm 34, verse 2, says, I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. The first way we can practically trust God is praise him. Praise him and give him thanks. And what that's doing logically, because I believe God is a logical God, is you're looking to praise him. You are looking for the evidence of his faithfulness in your circumstance. And as you see it, you start to trust, Right? It's like if I say, let me manage your money, a financial advisor, you're going to look at my resume. You're going to say, do I trust this man to manage my life savings? And you're going to see, does he have a track record? How has he done for other people? In the same way, God's saying, do the same thing. Look at my resume. And when you give him thanks and you give him praise and you see the evidences in your life, it becomes more and more difficult to not move to a mindset of trust. And if you're struggling finding something in your circumstances, I would say keep looking, but ultimately look to God's word. This is his resume. Challenge anybody in this room to bring me a resume more impressive than God's. I mean, the amount of stories that are in this thing, uh, you spend enough time in this book, you're going to see he's faithful in every single book, every single page. He's faithful to his people. And so that's the first step to learning to trust God is looking at his resume and seeing that he's trustworthy by giving him praise. The second way 
Uh, we see in verse four, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. He didn't stop at praise. He went to prayer. It says praise is acknowledging what God has done and is doing. And prayer is saying, God, I still need you to do something now and in the future. And together it covers the past, present, and in the future. And scripture is very clear. You're in a troubling circumstance and you need something. Ask God. You don't have because you don't ask. And I would say if you're in this spot and life is beating you down and you're really, really struggling with fear and anxiety, you're struggling with the difficulties of your circumstance, really pray in two, different, two, two ways. One is authentically. If you don't see God's faithfulness, tell him that. God, I don't see you working here. I'm consumed by my fear. I know my fear and my anxiety have led me to sin, led me to be timid, led me to backside my faith. Help my unbelief. We see that in the gospel accounts, right? Help my unbelief. Help me see the evidences of your faithfulness. Help me move to faith, Lord. I want to trust you. I want to trust you and experience that peace and power. And I love the book of Philippians because it tells us be anxious for nothing. But in everything, in prayer and supplication or prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace that transcends understanding will guard your hearts. If you want peace and power in your circumstance, you need to give God praise and prayer. It's the formula. Write it down. Praise and prayer will give you peace and power. And what I love here is David gives us one more practical way. It might be the most important way to move from fear to faith. In verse seven, he says, the angel of the Lord encamps, encamps and protects around those who what? Those who fear him. Comes back to the heart and your focus. If you have a fear of the Lord in your heart, it will trump all the other fears in your life. And when I first read that, I struggled. I said, okay, that sounds kind of hyper-Christianity. I don't really know what that means, fear of the Lord. And you read the text and it tells us, David, he doesn't leave us there and try to guess what the fear of the Lord is. He tells us this in verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. He's clearly referencing the sins that he had in 1 Samuel 21. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace, pursue it. Proverbs 8 clearly tells us the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. And it's the shifting of focus and asking yourself the real hard question, do I hate my sin and seek to grow in holiness above all else in my life? And ask yourself the question. And if you don't, you found the source that is leaving a foothold for fear to come in your life. You may want some holiness and may want to confront sin. Or if you want to be a financial success or you want to be married or you want to be whatever it is more than that, then you giving yourself reason to have fear because all of those things can be taken from you. Fear is a logical response to danger and losing something. But our secured future can't be taken away. And if you truly desire to grow in holiness and to confront and kill your sin above all else, there's no room for fear to come into your life. And that's a daily decision. We've seen this. You're gonna have to be in the word. You're gonna have to be in prayer. You're gonna have to be committed we said backsliding, your natural drift is going to be toward fear and toward sin. You're going to have to be intentional. If you're truly desiring, your focus is on God, you're desiring holiness and to kill your sin. It's the ultimate antidote. It's, you know, you're, you're not letting fear 
have any root. Using the soil analogy, it's nurturing the flower so it grows and it's ripping out the weeds before it can even grow to full fruition. So fear of the Lord is the key. And I think the best example in scripture that I could find of dealing with, somebody dealing with fear and having to move to faith is Jesus, Matthew 26. Uh, You think of the unimaginable circumstance that he had to go through. You know, for the believer, we deserve wrath and judgment for our sins. Yet we don't have to deal with it. We have temporary circumstances that we have to deal with now. But Jesus, who was perfectly innocent, had to deal with the wrath and punishment of everybody that he didn't deserve. He dealt with torture and pain beyond what we can even imagine. He was mocked by the people he came to love, serve, and save. And we know when he was praying that he was sweating drops of blood, there was such fear there. You know, what we see is that he moves from faith to fear to accomplish his mission. And he lives out praise. You see this in Matthew 26, verse 29 and 30. After the Last Supper, Jesus says, But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now or until the day that when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a what? A hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is about to die, and he sings praise. Praise to God. I don't know what psalm he's likely singing, but he's giving God acknowledgement for how he's faithful and how they're faithful in accomplishing this. Then he's in the garden. He prays that the Father would be with him, and the Lord sends him angels to comfort him. Praise for his friends. We're about to abandon him and betray him. Don't let Satan have him and sift him like we protect him. He prays for us, his future church, his future believers, that we'd be united as one, that we wouldn't be a people who are led by fear, that we would trust him. We'd be united. We'd proclaim truth in the world. Looking at Jesus, who conquered fear once and for all, when he nailed it to the cross and killed it and secured our futures. My final challenge for us today is just a question. Where's fear holding you back from trusting God today? Just think about that. Where's fear holding you back from trusting God? And we're going to close today in prayer. And as I'm praying, I just, I want you to give that, that area of your life to God. Be authentic with him. Say, I'm struggling with this. There's anxiety. There's fear in whatever it is in your life. Tell God you don't want to be there. Knowledge is faithfulness in your life. It's there. If you look long enough, you'll see the evidence, the practical needs, his presence with you, the future he's secured for you. And ultimately, after service, just like God gave David Ahimelech as an opportunity for somebody to pray with, to help him in his circumstances. I'll be down here in the front of the stage, as will Pastor Tyler. How many of us look at the story and and say, you know, how could David, man after God's own heart, come into the house of the Lord with what he's going through and not seek to pray to God and ask the priest to pray with him? Yeah, how many of us do the same thing? We're struggling day to day, week to week. We've got fear in our lives. We come in here, we listen to a sermon, we worship. We walk back out those doors without ever seeking to pray as the family of believers. There's something powerful in corporate prayer. And so we want to be available to you today. If you're struggling with something, fear is root in your life. We want to lift those requests together. Pray to a faithful God who can deliver us from all fear. Let's pray.